0: Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Live Wire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. We have an excellent show in store for you. Uh, we have Lori Gottlieb here, a psychotherapist who writes for The Atlantic. We have Mitchell S. Jackson making an appearance. He wrote a book, Survival Math. Plus, Mohanad sheki a great comedian from the Portland area, will perform for us, and we'll get some music from revel in dimes all the way from new york city the theme that we picked for the show this week is real talk and as you're going to hear all of our guests uh, have engaged in real talk in one form or another Uh, we also wanted to get the audience to tell us about an unpopular opinion that they have and you're going to hear their responses to that coming up in the show First, though, to kick things off, I wanted to ask our announcer, Elena Passarello, what maybe her most unpopular opinion is. So take a listen to this as we pick things up on stage at the Alberta Rose.
1: Well, I have... Pretend unpopular opinions just to be like a contrarian at parties. Yeah. Uh, And then I have the ones, the more fun ones are the ones that you actually hold. And I guess probably my least popular opinion would be the greatest actor of our current era is Nicolas Cage. I I truly... You mean the star of Face Off? Yes, yes. (laughs) And, and, And Wicker Man? Yes, especially his work in Wicker Man. I know, and I, I really believe that he is, is a spectacular actor. Uh, I think he's incredibly talented. I'll see anything that he does.
0: Do you feel like it's important for someone who's an actor to in any way convince the audience that they are the person that they're pretending to be? <laughs>
1: No. I think a lot of people think acting means, oh, I really felt like you you were pretending so good. You seem so real. Marlon Brando, he just ruined everything with this method bull crap. because I think there's...
3: This is a, a
0: follow up unpopular opinion. Marlon Brando yeah. ruined everything.
1: I mean, he's, he's fine. I, I, he's alright. But you know, like this whole Veritas cinema thing is just yeah. like no one is being real, right? It's, it's all a facade. It's all fake. And Nicholas Cage shows us just how fake it can be, <laughs> which, which I really like. I think he's a beautiful actor, you know, like he's he's like a like a cartoon, but he's not trying to be cartoonish. His his passion just goes into this wonderfully two dimensional place. Uh, and I think I really honestly think that he deserves like a lifetime achievement Oscar. I think he's a spectacular performer.
0: You seem to have really convinced the crowd here at the Alberta yeah? Rose Theater. Did I? I don't know if, if this is an unpopular opinion or not, but certainly it's something that I hadn't felt this way uh, up until about a week ago. Uh, I was listening to the great public radio show Studio 360, mm. distributed by our very same Public Radio International distributor. So they're like a sister show. Okay. So if they win a Peabody, I feel like we kind of won like half a Peabody. Totally. I think that's how that works. Yeah. Uh, and they had a story on about the uh, musician Yanni... And basically how, like, I think a lot of people think that Yanni was really famous, and then they started uh, selling his, like, concert DVDs on, uh, like, during public television fund drives. Right. But the the real story is that Yanni was not very famous, (laughs) and he got famous from being on those public television things.
1: And and you recently have revisited this genre of music making. Well here's
0: what happened. They're playing Yanni's music during the radio special. And and
1: I think it's you know,
0: they weren't coming right out and saying it, but the I think that the the kind of the 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 subtext was Yanni's music is pretty pretty bad.
1: Oh right. And they were
0: playing it, I think, to kind of illustrate how maybe unimaginative it was or maybe corny or whatever. And I am sitting in a rental car listening to this. And <laughs> I hear Yanni live at the Acropolis. And I was transported <laughs> on the wings of a Greek Pegasus. And I immediately downloaded Yanni live at the Acropolis. <laughs> and I he have did? been listening to it nonstop <laughs> for like a week and a half. Oh,
1: my God.
0: And I'm loving it. Unironically, I am loving the music of Yanni. Wow. Wow. Maybe it's some stuff I'm going through personally. I don't know. It's probably half Yanni's music, half me, where I'm at emotionally, but it's working. Uh, We have a guest about to come out here who knows all about real talk. It's because she's a psychotherapist. She writes her weekly column for The Atlantic, and her latest book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Let's welcome Lori Gottlieb here to LiveWire. Lori, welcome to LiveWire.
2: Thank you. It's so great to be here.
0: Um, Let's just start with talking about how uh, your latest book even got made. Like, how is it even legal? Because it's actual accounts of real people in their real therapy.
2: Right. So I was a writer before I became a therapist. And so anybody who comes to me knows in my informed consent that I can write about what goes on in the therapy room, um, but I have to protect their confidentiality.
0: So when people come to you for therapy, Mm -hmm. they know that they're also possibly going to be the subject of your (laughs) book? Because I feel like that would really cause me to shut down as a client.
2: I don't write about anybody that I'm currently seeing. Okay. And to be fair, I reveal my own therapy in the book.
0: Yes, you do actually, which I also found a little discomforting at times because your perspective as a therapist is that sometimes your patients are being annoying, or sometimes uh, they're being frustrating, and you notice this. And like, as a frequent attendee of therapy, I don't want to know that you are noticing this.
2: <laughs> right. So you know, most people are not boring if they show me who they are. And so the boring people are the people who go off on tangents over and over, or you try to like focus them and they won't focus. Um, you know, they're trying to keep you at bay. But if they actually Show me who they really are and they get real with me in the room. You don't have to have a fascinating life to be interesting. I think you're fascinating if you show me your humanity.
0: Um, One of the things that you write about in the book is your own life Mm -hmm. and your, you know, the relationship that you were involved in that was, you know, really kind of, I think you said it was a presenting factor for you. Like it was why you started going to therapy, or at least it was a big part of what you were talking about with your therapist. How do you, like, as a therapist, get a call from your, you know, significant other that's really troubling to you and then go walk into the therapy office and sit down and start listening to somebody else's problems and actually be available for them.
2: I think you don't bring that into the therapy room. I mean, I think it's, you know, when I, so because I'm a writer too, if I'm sitting at my computer, I can think about, you know, well, I should go over to Twitter or what should I get for lunch today or, you know, whatever, or the call that I just had. When you're in the therapy room, you're so focused on what's happening between you and the person that you're talking to for 50 minutes. It's very different from any other experience. You're, you're so engaged in what's happening in the room. And it's kind of like, I like to say, you're paying attention to the music under the lyrics. So they might be telling a story and talking about something, but I'm looking for, what's the music under there? What's the struggle under there? What's the pattern under there? If I
0: was a therapist, the whole time I'd be thinking, God, I haven't checked Twitter in a long time. Like, that would be the constant noise in the back of my head, which is why I would not be a very good therapist. Like, how are you making...
2: you go to therapy. You're not checking Twitter in your own therapy sessions. I want to be. I know, but you're not.
0: It's everything I can do to leave my phone alone, and sometimes I think about my phone. And I have an Apple Watch, and sometimes I'll try to look at the Apple Watch (laughs) to see if it's a notification that someone's texting me. The attention of one person, as you can tell, is not enough for me. (laughs) It needs to be happening from multiple angles.
2: So you must you must feel awful after you leave therapy because only one person paid attention to you So actually you come and you feel worse after
0: I actually to be honest with you I feel very good in therapy, but what I find myself doing is showing off I really want the therapist to think that I'm their best patient because I'm screwed up, but in a delightfully self-aware way
2: Well, <laughs> when I so when I went to therapy I had the same experience. So I was experiencing everything with my therapist that my patients would experience with me. So when I would leave and I'd see somebody else in the waiting room, I'd think, oh, is she more interesting than me? Does he look forward to her sessions more? Who does he like better? It's almost like this sibling rivalry. Because when you're in that room, you think, oh, you don't think about the other patients that the therapist might have. Oh, I do. You do? See,
0: I and have- I want to be like, I really want them to be like, oh, good. Oh, it's Tuesday. Luke Burbank's going to be here. I'm looking forward to this, <laughs> which is the, like, probably least helpful way for me to enter that situation. <laughs> Wait, we, we need to take a quick break. We're talking to Lori Gottlieb. Her new book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. This is Livewire from PRI. We will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully, based in Portland, Oregon. Fully is an amazing company. That sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive, doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you've got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well and just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference In your in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, It's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff. And I know you're gonna have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully. That's F-U-L-L-Y. Dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we have psychotherapist and author Lori Gottlieb here. Uh, Her latest book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's a fascinating book, by the way. I am a, uh, despite everything I've said so far on this episode of the show about my own issues, I am a big fan of therapy, and I'm always recommending it to people, probably to an annoying degree, and what I hear from people that don't go to therapy is they're their uh, concept of what it is is that a person is going to basically life coach them or just tell them to break up with this problematic person in their relationship or whatever. And in my experience, that's the least effective thing that could happen. It's, it's like when the therapist that I'm working with kind of helps guide me to an insight that I come to on my own. I mean, is that the whole goal? You're just trying to kind of guide the conversation in a way that will allow the person to figure stuff out about themselves.
2: Right, they need to understand things about themselves. So we're not going to give them advice because that's not very helpful. First of all, what I might do in my life might not be what they should do in their life. And second of all, um, if it goes badly, then they want to blame the therapist, right? You told me to do this. Um, But I think the other thing is that we, um, we have this saying, insight is the booby prize of therapy. Meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make change out in the world, then it's not really effective.
0: Uh, The story of how you actually became a therapist is kind of interesting because you had this whole other career going. You worked for NBC television. You you worked on the TV show Friends and, uh, coincidentally, ER.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, the things that I did, I worked in Hollywood. I went to medical school. I was a journalist, and then I became a therapist. It looks like they were different careers, but actually they all revolve around story. Student loan debt? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they all revolve around story and the human condition, right? So in, in the ER, I was, you know, on, on, on the show ER, right, they were fictional stories, but they were very moving stories. And then in the real ER, you were seeing real human drama play out. And as a journalist, you got to tell real people's stories. But as a therapist, you get to help people change their stories. And I feel like they all are related in that way, that we express ourselves through story. And when people come into the therapy room, they're telling me their stories. And I am almost like an editor because I want to help them revise their story. Often they'll come in with a story that is faulty, like I'm unlovable or nothing ever works out for me or it's all my husband's fault.
0: What if it is all their husband's fault?
2: It's it's never all their husband's fault. It's rarely, I would say, rarely all their husband's fault. Um, you know, and I think people need to see their own role in what their struggle is, so that they can figure out what to do about it.
0: Uh, we're talking to Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist. She has a book uh, out called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Um, do you feel like you're? more uh, equipped to navigate your life? Because I guess I would think that like if you learn all these insights that you're helping other people with, you would also be able to apply them to your life.
2: The, the problem with that is that as a therapist, I hold up the mirror to other people so they can see their reflection. They can see the things they aren't seeing. I have the luxury of the vantage point of not living their lives for them. I think it's really hard for us to see ourselves And a lot of times our friends, you know, there's this, I talk in the book about the difference between wise compassion and idiot compassion, and idiot compassion is when you don't want to rock the boat and you kind of just support your friend in whatever they're saying, but it's actually, your honesty would be much more helpful than, you know, you're trying to smooth things over for them. And wise compassion is sometimes you need to deliver a compassionate truth bomb but you need to deliver it. And we can't do that for ourselves. We don't see ourselves that clearly.
0: How does somebody, how do you know when to drop the, what did you call it? A
2: compassionate truth bomb? You
0: rarely heard the word compassion and bomb in the same sentence, (laughs) almost never. Um, Like, how do you know when it's time to drop a compassionate truth bomb and when it's time to just listen to somebody and let them kind of talk about something?
2: You should just listen to somebody, but sometimes um, somebody is gunning for you to support their opinion. If they have like a low opinion of their partner, they want you to support that. And you might not agree with that. And so you don't have to support that position. You can support the fact that they feel that way, but you don't have to, to agree with them that their partner is whatever they think their partner is. And it will help them to see that maybe they're, they're playing some role in the situation. And it's very hard to do with a friend because your friend might feel like you're supposed to be taking his or her side. And a therapist doesn't have to do that. We're not taking their side. We're there to help them see something that they aren't already seeing.
0: Do you guys get bummed out when we decide we don't want to be your patient anymore?
2: You know, that's what people think. We we don't,
0: (laughs) and and I don't. don't, Maybe like a little bummed, right?
2: what, What I mean by not being bummed is that I feel like. You know, we have the worst business model ever, which is that from the first day that you come, our goal is to help you leave us as soon as you can, not because we don't want to see you, but because we want to help you struggle less, and we don't want you to be in pain for so long. We're always talking with people about have they met their goals, and is there something else that they want to work on, but we're not trying to just keep them there every week. So, um, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go, and you know that from the get-go, that that's the setup.
0: Lori Gottlieb, everybody. All right, uh, Laurie, uh, here on LiveWire, we like to try to really get to know our guests on a very deep level. And uh, I feel like we've been getting to know you somewhat, and I certainly feel like I got to know you in reading the book. Uh, But we have one more exercise we'd like to do. And so here on the table, uh, in front of me, we have a jar. It has the 10 essential questions of our time in it. We call this the jar of truth. And this week, because you're a therapist, we're going to put a twist on things. This jar is actually filled with the 10 essential questions about therapy of our time. (laughs) Okay, so here's how it's gonna work. Uh, Lori, you grab a question out of the jar of truth. Uh, Hand it over to our announcer, Elena Passarello. Elena will read it, we would like to get your honest answer, and uh, because, Lori, our time is also valuable, we're gonna try to keep you to about 30 seconds per answer. All right, so question number one from the jar of psychotherapy
2: truth.
1: Lori, how do you wrap up a session on time if someone's in the middle of a story?
2: So we are very aware of the rhythm of a session, and we want to kind of put you back together before you go out into the world. And so when we're looking at the clock, it's not because we're really bored by what you're saying. It's because we want to know how much time do we have while you're in the middle of this very intense moment to kind of help you... Um, transition back to wherever you're going afterward. So we're not going to leave you at the end of a session where you're just, you know, not wanting to
1: leave at that moment.
0: That was exactly 30 seconds. That was incredible.
1: Next question. If someone starts angling for 3 therapy at a party, what's going through your mind? Where are the
2: drinks and how can I get one?
1: <laughs> Short but sweet.
0: I like it. All right, last one. Okay, final question.
1: How can you tell when someone is avoiding the real issue? Ah, um,
2: so this is when they will tell you the same story over and over, and when you try to get underneath the story, they will just repeat what they said over again. Um, they're also the people who, like, in on the car ride over, they're thinking about what they're going to say, and they already have their opening line, mm-hmm. so they don't just come in and sit down and see where their mind goes. They have an agenda, and their agenda is to keep me out from whatever secret that they
1: don't want to talk about. Are secrets uh, detrimental to therapy? Can you... <laughs>
2: You know, Carl Jung called secrets psychic poison, and I think that's true. Secrets are incredibly corrosive, but secrets are all about shame. And so there are the secrets that we keep from the world. There are the secrets that we keep from the people close to us. And then there are the secrets that we keep from our therapists and the secrets we keep from ourselves. My job is to figure out what are the secrets that they're keeping from me so that I can help them figure out the other three areas of secrets.
0: Laurie, I feel like this has been a really great time together, but our our time here is done. (laughs) Um, I'd love to pick this up with you next week. Uh, Laurie Gottlieb, everybody. (laughs) Hey there, it's Luke. Don't go anywhere, because coming up we have comedian Mohamed El-Shecky,
4: Sheki, is a keen student of current events. Uh, and it's such a weird time to be an immigrant right now here in the States. I don't know if you guys have been watching the news lately for the past 200 years. Uh... He's also a keen student of
0: past events, too, it would appear. Anyway, he is hilarious. He's coming up in a minute. Don't go anywhere. This is LiveWire from PRI. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week, and we're talking about real talk. Our next guest is actually a Portland native whose latest book is full of very real talk about his time growing up here and trying to survive and thrive in a system that was basically designed to bring him down. The book is Survival Math. Please welcome Mitchell S. Jackson to Livewire. <laughs> Mitchell, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you. I'm home. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This book is really incredible. I think uh, what a lot of people have said is it's kind of unlike anything they've read before. Um, You grew up in Portland. I think that a lot of people may be hearing this radio show in other parts of the country. They think of Portland as like Portlandia. Yeah. Like comically white.
3: (laughs) Describe the Portland that you grew up in. (laughs) OK, so I'll just talk about this street since we're on Alberta. Um, I used to go to this club. It was on 16th in Alberta. It's called the Texan. Texas Annex it would stay open till like 2 in the morning. This is where all the like guys who were hustling, all the kind of young women around my age would go. But inevitably, at the end of the night, someone would like start shooting. And so if you didn't want to be caught out there, you would leave a little early. Um, And I did, you know, but sometimes, you know, the the DJ was really rocking and you just stayed and (laughs) took your chances at the end of the night. Um, What was your childhood like specifically
0: for you being a kid living or being a person of color in Portland?
3: Um, Well, I lived here when Northeast Portland was an African-American community. So I didn't really realize how white Portland was, you know. I didn't get a chance to see that until we would drive to, like, Ben for a basketball tournament or something. we're like, oh, where are we? This is no, We're not supposed to be here, you know? Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Were you, like, a reader as a kid? Were you interested
3: in in words and language? Were you, like, a nerd? Um, I think I was more of an observer. I, I did like language, but I liked kind of the, I guess, um, come from the oral tradition, like I listened to a lot of my, my uncles and my father um, who, who spoke with a kind of like a poetry and a kind of cadence that was really uh, engaging to me, but I didn't necessarily recognize, it wasn't literary, it was more oral. But now, you know, I feel like that's the kind of language that I'm trying to translate on the page.
0: Um uh, the central idea of this book is, is sort of this idea of what you call men on the scale. Yeah. One of them. Yes. What is, what, what,
3: can you explain kind of what, what you mean by that? So I read an essay in, uh, Esquire magazine, like 2011. And it was a guy who was a married man. And he was talking about cheating on his wife and all his like rationale for cheating and um he was he seemed he had a lot of hubris. He was like, I don't care what you all think and but he also did it anonymously. Um <laughs> Yeah. So uh I um I recognized some of his kind of pathologies um as some of the things that were very close to how I had grown up thinking about women and uh but I also had several critiques of his argument, one of which was that he did Anonymous, the other one was that he never stopped to think about the fallout of all his harms against women, and so I challenged myself to critique that, you know, my history. So the men on the scale are like the kind of classic womanizers, you know, so like from Alcibiades to Lord Byron to JFK to MLK. Um, But really investigating the history, what is their psychology, what kind of like historical context shaped the way that they thought. Um, So yeah, that's one of the ideas. Uh, And then, you know, I didn't want to, I wanted to stick my chest out and say, you know, I'm going to own these.
1: One of the things I love about this collection is what you were just talking about, Mitchell, the... I was a person who had this experience, but when I decided to write about it, I decided to look all the way back to ancient Greece, the nineteen yeah. sixties, everywhere in between. So can you talk a little bit about uh the the urge or what, what what spoke to you about that kind of kaleidoscopic approach? Uh
3: you know, I hear a lot of people say, um, you know, you just need to tell your story like speak your truth. Right. And I think you should. Um, uh, but to me that's like just the beginning. You know, that's like pretty, I don't know if it's easy, but I think that, like, there's no craft in speaking your truth, right? There's like, it doesn't have to be any rigor. Thank God there's a public radio show in it. (laughs) (laughs) This is literally all I do. (laughs) No, no, I've been paying, it's a lot of craft in what you do. I I see it. And that's, that's the trick is like to have the craft and not let the reader see it. It's like a magic Mm -hmm. trick.
0: We're talking to uh, Mitchell S. Jackson, by the way, his new book is Survival Math. Uh, about uh, his life here in Portland uh, and the lives of a lot of other people in his community here in Portland One of the things that you do then is you go back and you actually talk to a number of these women who yeah. you interacted with and who mm-hmm. you I think by your own admission did not necessarily do right by. Yeah.
3: What yeah. was that like? Uh, man <laughs> uh, One of the most challenging things I've done uh, on or off the page Um, Because it was not only revisiting the trauma, but it was also kind of gauging whether or not, like, asking them these questions was something that was going to, like, open another wound. Like, were you re-traumatizing them, basically? Was I re-traumatizing them? And then, like, what was the payoff in the end? Like, would it be worth it even if I, you know, had the material and was able to, like, share it with other people? So I really wrestled with that. Um, and and they were very generous in in responding. So Not all of them did, um, but they were, the ones that did were were very generous, and I I really appreciate that. Did you struggle with the question of of whether this was for your benefit or theirs? Yes. Yeah, I, um, and maybe I still do, um, but I think, you know, I felt like they gave me the kind of encouragement I needed, like, if there's something helpful for someone else, then I'll do this. I don't think they really did it for me, Um, and I I guess I would feel more guilty if they just did it for me. But I think they actually felt like something in their experience would be valuable to another, you know, young woman or young man even um, who's dealing with these same kind of situations. Uh, You also write in the book about going to jail for selling drugs. Yes. Yes. Um, What's that like? Um, Well, you know, I'm staying downtown uh, and I actually stayed here. I had my book release here a few weeks ago, stayed in the hotel, but I didn't think about it then, but I, I'm on a floor, I'm on the 19th floor, and if I walk to a certain corner of my hotel, I can look and see the Multnomah County Courthouse, wow. which is where they took me in handcuffs and sent me. To, well, they didn't send me. Well, I went to prison from there. And I was just thinking like, how odd it is that I'm back here on book tour uh, <laughs> a block and a half away from where I went to prison. <laughs> so it wasn't a great experience, but it was also an experience <laughs> Where I did see, um, you know, people that I had grown up with.
0: Uh, we're talking to Mitchell S. Jackson. His new book is Survival Math.
3: What are you hoping people get out of this book? Um, well, that we existed. Um, I think uh, in our national kind of identity, Oregon, Portland's national identity. Everywhere I go, I say I'm from Portland. I'm like, oh my god, like really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> for real. <laughs> Um, and, and that happens, you know, all over the country, even when I'm traveling internationally. So I'd want people to know that there was a community of people here that survived, that thrived. And then also it's a family ledger, like 50, 60, 70 years from now, I want my grandchildren to be able to pick this book up and say like, okay, I have a family history here, you know, but you also have to be willing to accept consequences. Uh, So I wrote this book with compassion. I wrote it. Uh, I don't think I lied in any part of the book. I did very rigorous research. Um, I'm empathetic, I think. And so if I did all of those things uh, and, you know, with the kind of, I think, a pure intent, if someone disagrees or someone is angered, well, you know, I got to... That's how it is, you know? I'm, uh, I'm out here living, and you know that's the story that I received. I didn't do it to, to harm anyone, but I'm, I'm willing to accept whatever consequence. I mean, I haven't talked to some members of my family for years, from the residue years, mm-hmm. um, and I have to be okay with that.
1: What was that transition light like, from the world of making a novel to yeah. the world of making a collection of very deeply researched and intensely voiced essays?
3: Um, I think it was Preparation. Um, yeah in the way that the novel teaches you about structure uh you have to kind of familiarize yourself with dialogue and, mm-hmm. and knowing what conflict looks like and um all of the things that I think make a great novel also are in this there's there's a lot of narrative in this there's short stories in this there's me imagining scenes that where i wasn't present so so it felt like preparation if you add to that like hours and hours and hours of research then you get something close to uh, survival math Uh, Mitchell this book is really incredible
0: thanks for writing it, hope everybody gets it the book is survival math Mitchell S. Jackson, thanks for being on LiveWire thank you, thank you This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're talking about real talk this week, and uh, we asked the folks here at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, to fill out a little uh, questionnaire, what their most unpopular opinion is. Elena, you've got some of those in front of you. What are are they telling you?
1: Here's one uh, unpopular opinion from Arthur. Garfunkel had all the talent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, also, all of the smugness. It's true. Like, we'll never get him on this show, so I'm not worried about it. But, like, you know, he keeps a blog of every book he reads.
1: No. Aww. I can't
0: understand. I can't interpret that reaction. (laughs) I I will totally read that book blog. It feels like he just wants to let everyone know that he's doing fine. He's reading a lot of very important books. (laughs) What
1: else? (laughs) Here's one from Mark. Mark's unpopular opinion. I don't think the live wire questions have been very good lately. That is an unpopular opinion, Mark. <laughs> That's right.
0: Do you have one more, Elena? Can we try to <laughs>
1: cleanse uh, the palate? How about one from Chris? Car hearts are not for date night, <laughs> or for weddings, or for theater. Please tell my husband this. <laughs> Chris does mention in the comment that Carhartts are okay for Live Wire. So, oh,
0: uh, okay. That's so good to know. So what that means. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're talking about real talk this hour. Our comedian was an English teacher and interpreter in Benghazi who managed to make his way to the Portland stand-up comedy scene. You know, that old story. He was recently named one of Conan's comics to watch, as well as one of the Portland Mercury's undisputable geniuses of comedy. He's hilarious. We are delighted to have him back on the show. Please welcome Mohanad Elshecki to Livewire.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, the people at home listening can't see this, but wow, a standing ovation. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, you can see it. You can see it. I got to do my set. Thank you so much. Uh, A little about me. My name is Mohanad. I've uh, been living here in the States for five years now. Yeah. Uh, And it's such a weird time to be an immigrant right now here in the States. I don't know if you guys been watching the news lately for the past 200 years. Uh, it's quite rough. It's also weird being an immigrant, specifically here in Portland, because everyone here has a sign next to their door that would read something like, immigrants are welcome here. And I want to test that so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanna open someone's front door and just be like, well, I am here. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow, amazing. Okay, mm. Is that the fridge? Okay, mostly LeCroix, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I'll sleep outside. Uh, uh, now recently I moved to a new place, I have a new roommate, my new roommate's name is Guion. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name Guion or not, I haven't heard the name myself, so I we go oh, Gian, what a nice name. What does Guillaume mean? And he said, oh, Guillaume, Guillaume is an Italian name that translates to, God is great. And I was like, sure, okay, Uh, absolutely. Uh, But I did feel kind of jealous because I know for a fact that I cannot name my kid, God is great in Arabic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that won't fly, like, like, like that literally won't fly anywhere, yeah. Now, I was, I was born Muslim, I was born in a Muslim family, but growing up, I used to, I used to read the Bible a lot, yeah, because uh, you gotta know what your enemies are up to, and, uh... (laughs) And surprisingly, they were up to the same thing. I'm just like, I'm like, wow, same book. Who wrote this? Kafka? Uh, Thank you. I went to college. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Portland State, they have books, read half of them. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyone here turned 28 two weeks ago? It's just me. Okay. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. I'm 28. Now I'm going to write more jokes and I'm going to like write more jokes about astrology and how dumb that thing is. And then five hours into research, I was like, wow, I'm such a Pisces. <laughs> yeah. That was a Pisces move right there. Uh, I used to, I used to work in retail. I quit that a few months ago. Uh, to do comedy full-time, yeah, yeah, I wish you were my parents. Uh... (laughs) I worked in retail, and I hated it so much. I hated working in retail. I hated that place I used to work at so much. I'm not even allowed to mention it uh, on stage, because, like, uh, once they learned that I did comedy, they made me sign a legal contract not to bring them up ever again. Uh, Yeah, but they do sell iPhones, so... uh... (laughs) Who knows? It can be anything. Uh, I had this, uh, this lady one time who approached me. I was like, hey, uh, you have an accent. Where are you from? And I love it when people do that. Because uh, people try to guess where I'm from all the time. And because it's a fun game for both of us. Uh, and uh, I was like, oh, I'm from Libya. Originally, that's where I'm from. To which she replied, <laughs> Uh, do you mean Lebanon? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, hmm yeah. Yeah, Lebanon. For 27 years, I called it Libya, and then here you come. Wow, look at that. Look at this walking globe. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the customer is always right. Mm, yeah, yeah. I also saw the thing on the news lately that this school district in Pennsylvania Uh, They want to arm students and protect them by giving them rocks (laughs) Yeah, and that will work only in one case like if the attacker weapon of choice was like uh, scissors Uh, Yeah If he comes with paper It's done (laughs) Anyway, my name is Mohan al Sheikh. That's my time everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you Mohanad el Sheki, We will
0: be right back. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Nancy Benway of Vancouver, Washington and Lori Kelly of Portland, Oregon. Nancy and Lori are part of the LiveWire member community. They generously support LiveWire with a donation each month. They live in Vancouver and Portland. They are separated by state boundaries, by a river, but they are connected by by supporting Livewire. Was that too grandiose? I don't care. It is so important what folks like Nancy and Lori are doing for our show. It's genuinely how we're able to keep this thing going. So a huge thanks this week to Nancy and Lori. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. Uh, my name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host uh, here with Elena Passarello, and we're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We have comedian Mohanad sheki here as well. Uh, Mohanad, uh, we've known you on LiveWire because you've been on the show before, yeah. um, but you were in the news recently. For a like less funny reason, and you didn't do anything wrong, but like you were playing a gig in Spokane, Washington. E- what I-
4: happened? Yeah, I was I was in Pullman, Washington. Oh, Pullman. Yeah, yeah, doing uh, doing a comedy gig there. Uh, yeah, and I was taking a Greyhound bus, and I got stopped by uh, Border Patrol uh, or CBB who uh, stopped me uh, and uh, took me uh, out of the bus and detained me for like 20 minutes or so. Uh, And then I gave them all of my papers and stuff, and they were like, these don't look real. Uh, And I was like, I don't know. They were like, they're easily faked. And I was like, well, this is your problem. You gave those to me.
0: (laughs) What what was their reaction to that? Bit of logic. They
4: did not enjoy it. Yeah, they were not fans of comedy at all, or civil rights, and, uh, yeah.
0: Um, What are you saying to them throughout this process, and also what's going on in your mind? This sounds like it must have been kind of surreal.
4: Well, yeah, at the beginning, it was, like, obviously inconvenient. But I was like, okay, once I tell them, like, uh, like about my, my case, and everything, I was like, I applied for an asylum, I got it approved, uh, we've done all of that, I'm, like, here legally, I have my papers, uh, you can, like, check the numbers on my IDs and stuff like that. And after I repeated that three times, uh, they were like, okay, we'll make some calls. And I can hear them, like, on the other side, like, talking, and they were like, oh, yeah, okay, so, okay, yeah, uh, It's in the system. Cool. Okay. And then came to me. I was like, well, there are no records for you. Uh, And I was like, cool. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure there are. Uh, And he was like, no, there isn't. Uh, And then I was like, yeah, I'm going to call my lawyer. I'm going to take legal action, blah, blah, blah. You know, just came at them with the confidence with, like, a middle-aged white woman. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You had your... Yeah, you had your can I talk to a manager face on. Manager, like the White House, like okay, you want to talk to that? Uh, Yeah. So they were like very annoyed and frustrated with me because I was like, yeah, I'm verified on Twitter, and uh, (laughs) I obviously didn't tell them that. But uh, although, although I guess
0: ironically, that was sort of how I think I found out about it because you started tweeting about this. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So yeah, I went back on the bus, and obviously I was super annoyed. Like it was just like very, very like not a good experience because like even after they let me on the bus they were like next time have your papers on you uh. like, oh those papers okay I'll have them again with me uh so I went back on the bus and I was like uh I, I tweeted it and I was like for two reasons first I was like so when I like I wanted someone to talk to so I'm like I'm just gonna like throw it on social media and like I did have like Uh, A lot of people, like who follow follow me, who are like kind of like have like a bigger like uh, following and stuff. So I was like expecting a a reaction, but not as much as it got. What what was the reaction? How big did it get? I tweeted the whole thread, uh, saying everything that happened, and then posted the pictures of the agents as well because I took pictures of them. And then left my phone for like an hour, then came back, and I was like, "Okay, we are at 100k now." This is... <laughs> and then, like 100,000 likes. Yeah, or and then like people or... retweeting, and like like big names are just like tweeting it, and, and then uh, Rep. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, she like uh, also like tweeted AOC. Uh, AOC. She retweeted it too, and I was like, "Okay, this is gonna be fun." Uh, and then before I know it, I was like, getting like, DMs and calls like, from like, news agencies and stuff like that. And I remember getting a call and they were like, hey, like, we're from like, this uh, news channel. Uh, would you mind talking to us about what happened on the bus? And I was like, I'm on the bus still. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: I come from tremendous white privilege, so I can only imagine yeah. what it would be like to be in your shoes in this situation. On the one hand, I I can imagine it would feel really demeaning, really frustrating. You've done so much in your life to be here in this country yeah, legally. absolutely, yeah. But then also, hundreds of thousands of people got to hear about this. Was it yeah. kind of
4: weirdly... I don't know I mean, worth it, it. It it sucks and you you never want to be the hero of these stuff like these things uh, because it it sucks it's like it's a, it's a bad feeling but this was the first time they actually like even issued a statement after like this whole thing happened. What was their response? Their response was like uh yeah all of that happened uh for sure uh but they were like defending it but I'm glad they did that because, uh, first of all, it got to them. Second of all, it was just like a lot of people, when I posted the story, were like, this is a lie. It never happened. And I was like, why would anyone lie about being on a Greyhound bus? Like...
0: <laughs> well, we're very glad that you made it back. Mohanad sheki everyone. Thank you so much. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon this week, and uh, we're talking about real talk. Our musical act this hour is a foursome from Brooklyn. They blend the blues, gospel, and good old rock and roll. Uh, their self titled album is out now. Please welcome Revel in Dimes to Livewire. All the way from New York City. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Lori Gottlieb, Mitchell S. Jackson, Mohanad L. Shecky, and Revel in Dimes. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines fully and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Ezra Rose, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. And thanks, as always, to Carlson audio additional funding is provided by the oregon arts commission and the james f and marion l miller foundation Livewire was created by robin tenenbaum and kate sokoloff our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week thanks to member roger meyer of portland oregon and also member chris bright of portland oregon for their support for more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter head on over To livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
3: PRI, Public
0: Radio International. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be. One to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read the the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much. If you've left a review and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.